I present my approach to storytelling for product managers to various groups, and I always get some interesting questions during and after the presentation. I also share these storytelling ideas with you on the podcast, and I thought maybe you might have some of the same questions. So in this episode, I thought I'd share a few of the questions I often get and their answers. Hi, this is Nels Davis, and you're listening to episode number 85 of the Secrets of Product Management podcast. I hope you're having a great day and your year is starting out great as well. You might be saying to yourself, but wait, isn't this the All the Responsibility, None of the Authority podcast? The podcast for product managers and innovators, blah, blah, blah. And you would be right about that. It's the same podcast. It does have a new name, has a new URL, although the old one still works. It has a little bit of fresh paint on the branding side, but it's the same podcast. So, under the old name, because the new name has only been around for two episodes at this point, I've done quite a few episodes on storytelling for various purposes, like episode number 71, More Proven Secrets for Brilliant Storytelling. You can find that episode at secretsofpm.com 71. Episode 61 is all about using your customer stories for objection handling and sales. Again, secretsofpm.com 61 in that case. And to summarize all those episodes and presentations in one quick phrase, I talk about a really simple structure for telling a story that you can use pretty easily. A great story is about a problem we're solving, a difficult and challenging path to a solution that only you can navigate, followed by a meaningful transformation when the problem is solved. It's very simple to state. It's not quite as simple to execute, but it's still pretty simple. It's an easy way to tell a story. And it makes you focus on the most important components of the story, the problem, something about why the solution, getting to that solution, is interesting and challenging. And, of course, the meaningful transformation at the end, what happened after the solution was found that made the whole thing worth doing. So I present about this structure with a lot more information and different ideas about how to apply the structure, especially for product managers in the various situations that product managers find themselves in, like pitching new product ideas, pitching and demoing the product itself, training the sales and marketing teams, handling objections, and so on. And of course, when I do these presentations, I get a few questions from the audience in response to these presentations and to the podcast episodes. And so I'll just run through some of the questions that I've been asked and share some answers. The first question I've often gotten is something along the lines of, I'm faced with a situation where I have a relatively new small company or product in a market where there's a couple of significant competitors already. How can I use storytelling to help me grow my product in this market? And the answer is that I have a couple of pieces of advice for this situation. So first of all, there's some major players in the market. You have entered that market with an offering. And presumably, you have some reason for thinking that your offering is a better choice for at least some segment of customers than that of the competitors. So you must have a set of differentiators. Hopefully you do. If you don't, that's a different problem. So you need to understand, of course, what those are and articulate them. And if you don't, you have to figure it out. And, of course, you also should have some successful customers, even if only a few at the beginning. So what you do for your stories in this case is you talk to your customers and find out which of them tried the competitor products and failed. And then they tried your solution and they were successful. This gives you tools for that sales situation and for marketing to them. That's essentially a great story. And in this case, so the story is about the problem that the customers faced, the one that they looked at the competitor's tool to solve and failed, the one they looked at your tool to solve and it succeeded, and then what benefit they got from it afterwards, what the transformation was, the meaningful transformation. So that's the way you think about that story. 
Now, you're going to then start using that story to say, in a situation where you're competing with one of those other players, hey, let me tell you about a customer who tried that other product, and they failed. And then they tried our product, and they succeeded. And then you can use whatever part of the story that you've collected to help you close that sale or overcome that objection. So that's the first thing. Just make sure you get the stories of your customers and why they were successful and how they were unsuccessful with the competitors. Now, the other thing you might also do is take a look at the stories the competitors are telling about themselves. If they're like many, many product companies, those are not very good stories. Typically, the success stories that companies put up on their websites aren't very good. They're not very emotionally engaging. They don't really talk about the the deep problem that the customer was suffering before they found the solution. They often leave out the really interesting parts of the transformation. They might talk about the business results, but not necessarily about the personal results, for example, that the person that bought the software or the product experienced, like getting a raise or getting a promotion. So if you just add emotional engagement to your stories and your marketing, you might just increase your ability to win just because you have better stories, even if the stories are roughly the same. If you are using more emotionally engaging stories, it might accelerate your success. So let me give a quick ad here before we get to more questions. But I have a question for you. Do you know how to turn your accomplishments into engaging stories that illustrate your competence and achievements? Most people don't, as it turns out. Now, I can help you turn what you did in your day job into powerful, compelling stories that convince hiring managers you're the one they want on their team. And that's in my live boot camp on April 17th and 18th. That's Saturday and Sunday of the week this episode is published. You'll learn a powerful story structure that works for most stories. You'll learn secret storytelling techniques used in blockbuster movies and great literature, but which you can easily apply to your own stories. But the most important thing and the reason to attend the boot camp is that in the boot camp, I work directly with you and a few other folks who are also attending, up to six, to coach you through applying this storytelling framework to one of your own stories. So you'll end up with a great story and a new skill that you've practiced and can apply to other stories. Now, the boot camp is four hours total. It's two two-hour sessions on Saturday and Sunday morning Pacific time, again, April 17th and 18th. To sign up for that course, go to secretsofpm.com bootcamp. A link to the bootcamp sign-up page is also in the show notes at secretsofpm.com 85. And I hope you join me for the bootcamp. It's a transformative experience. So let's get back to some questions. Now, in my presentation, I often use Die Hard, the movie, as a good illustration of the basic story structure. There's a problem we're solving, a difficult and challenging path to a solution to the problem, and a meaningful transformation at the end. In Die Hard, the problem we're solving is that McLean's estranged wife has been kidnapped by terrorists. McLean is the hero, of course. Now, the difficult and challenging path is McLean fighting with mercenaries up and down a big skyscraper in order to save his wife. And the meaningful transformation at the end is that he and his wife are reconciling. Now, there's other stuff that happens in the movie as well, but that's the core structure of the movie. Now, I mention it because Die Hard comes up as an example in this answer. So somebody asked, and this was in the context of using these stories for job interviews, the stories about your own accomplishments. This structure works for lots of different kinds of stories, but one of the things that I teach a lot is how to use these stories for job interviews, the stories about your own accomplishments. That's what the boot camp is about, for example. So she said, I love your ideas about how to improve the stories of my own accomplishments to use in job interviews, but won't it seem weird to the interviewer if I just tell one story after another? Won't it seem redundant? 
Well, this is a little bit of a style question, and it depends on why you're doing it and how you're doing it. Why are you telling three consecutive stories? Now, I'll give you an example where you might do that, but one thing you can often do is you can use the same story multiple times. So in a job interview, they might ask you to tell me about a time you were innovative, and you tell a story about when you were innovative. And then they say, well, okay, tell me about a time you worked with a difficult person, and what did you do about that? And then they might ask you another question, right? So on and so forth. Now, one of the ways to handle this is actually to use the same story multiple times, to use different components of the same story. First of all, you tell the story about how you were innovative, how you were facing this problem where the competitors were out-innovating you, and you did something that only you could do to make the team more innovative and come up with new ideas, and the result was you started to beat the competitor more and more, a meaningful transformation. And then the interviewer says, okay, oh, that's awesome. Now tell me about a time you had to work with someone difficult. And then your answer might be, oh, well, on that project I just talked about, where we fixed the innovation problem, there was this one guy who was really difficult to work with. Let me tell you what I did to solve that problem. So you're just kind of building on some stuff you've already talked about. Obviously, this doesn't work if you didn't have a difficult person on that same project. But if you do, you might chain those stories together and you start to build and build and build. So you don't necessarily have to tell three different stories for these three different questions. You can tell one story that has different components in it, or maybe you tell two stories. Ideally, any good story is going to be worked drilling down into further and further and further, right? So then this is just like Die Hard. This is where Die Hard comes in. Now, Die Hard, the way I presented it above, it was a one-minute summary. It was less than a minute, maybe 10 seconds. Wife's kidnapped, fights his way through a building, they get back together. That's a 10-second summary. But, of course, they made an hour-and-a-half movie of it. You can always go deeper in these things. And, in fact, in a job interview, a sign of a good story is that you've engaged the interviewer enough that they say, oh, Tell me more about this thing that you just mentioned as part of that story. That's often a really good sign. But it's also something that you can use yourself. If you're talking about consecutive stories, you might just make the consecutive stories part of one big story, but you highlight different components of it depending on what you're trying to achieve. So another thing I talk about a lot in my storytelling presentations is about how data doesn't necessarily make your story more persuasive. A lot of times, those of us who are sort of technical, we think the way to make our stories better is to put a lot of data into the story. And that's not necessarily going to work. To make a story persuasive, you need emotionally engaging content. And data often is not very emotionally engaging. And, you, and even if it is, it's only for a segment of the people in the room. A lot of people just are not engaged at all by data. But you can use data in your stories to support your argument or to support the claim or the request that you're making. And so I talk about that in my training. But people often talk, ask me, how do I turn data into meaning? I've got some data. How can I make use of it to create or buttress a story that I might want to tell about the, inf the stuff that I was researching? And I think there are several different ways to think about this. When you started collecting the data in the first place, you probably had a hypothesis. I hope you did. You had some reason to think, oh, for example, customers are going to be more successful if they go down this route than this other route, or our more successful customers tend to go down this route rather than the other route. That's my hypothesis. Let me do some measurements to figure that out. Now, I would recommend if you get a bunch of data and you want to do some stuff with storytelling with your data, don't forget to go back to your hypothesis and think about how that hypothesis reflects actual goals that the user achieved 
or was trying to achieve. Often these will be personal goals, which are emotionally resonant and therefore good for stories. You know, our products are used by people to achieve things. And ideally, when our customers are more successful using the product, they're getting better at achieving their goal. The goal is desirable to achieve for some reason or another. And if our metrics, if our data shows that people are having an easier time achieving their goals, then you probably don't want to talk about the 10% improvement in the metric. You probably want to talk about the 10% improvement of the people achieving their goals. You know, so the goal may be a business result, but if the user can achieve a business result more easily, then that actually often resolves into a personal goal, such as I don't have to spend as much time doing this boring thing, or by doing this boring thing faster, I was able to do something else as well. Or because it's now really high paced, the process of doing this boring thing is no longer boring. It's actually interesting. Or I can see much more easily how what I'm doing in your product is impacting my customers, right? So you want to look for those kinds of results on the part of your customer and achieving their goals. Now, generally speaking, if the data is worth collecting, there's some kind of personal story that has people impact behind the data. And you should search for that when you're working on your story. Now, ideally, you don't start gathering the data until you know what that impact might be and what your expectation is for the data to explain something about the impact. And that's really where you should start with the data anyway. You, you have a hypothesis that you're going to have an impact on the customer, and then you start measuring to see if you will have that impact. One question that comes up a lot is, are there people that don't respond to this human angle, who sort of don't like the emotional engagement part of the story? You know, stereotypically, this person was thinking about CFOs, chief financial officers, for example. And the fact is that they do often try not to let their emotions get engaged, but often they will. And it depends a lot on how they feel about everything else that's going on. There are a few things to think about. If you're presenting directly to the CFO, often they really are focused only on some numbers for that moment. And maybe that's because they think they understand everything already or something like that. But they might not understand everything already. I give an example of a company that had a data upload that was quite challenging and causing lots of errors and somebody wanted to get more funding to do work to improve the performance and reliability of this data upload. And so she had a slide that had a bunch of numbers on it, basically how many data uploads they did every week, how many records there were, how many errors there were, things like that. I started asking her about these numbers because I didn't know what was behind them. And this was turned out to be a healthcare company. And essentially every one of those numbers was some kind of a life status change for a person, a new baby, or somebody got married, or somebody got divorced, or God forbid somebody died. And so each of those rows of data reflected something important in somebody's life. You know, not successfully uploading that data might mean that a baby didn't wasn't able to get its appointment to get its first vaccinations, for example, or its first visit to the doctor or something like that. So that becomes much more compelling once you learn that, oh, each of those things can have a, an impact on an individual person if, that, if it fails. That makes it much more interesting, that data load problem. So if you think about you're presenting to a CFO and you're saying, I want some funding, to, I think it'd be worthwhile to fund improving how we do data load, you know, oftentimes that CFO may not actually know what that data means. 
what it's being transferred for. And so if you give the CFO the story that surrounds that, that these are about people's life status changes and being able to get the baby to the doctor, you know, if you tell that person it may not have an impact in that meeting immediately. I mean, obviously, none of this is 100% certain anyway. And sometimes people are more resistant than other times. But, you know, the next time you talk to the CFO, that person, they're likely to remember that goal of helping babies get to go to the doctor. They may remember you as the person that clued them into something that they didn't know about before. In other words, it may have additional benefits than simply being more persuasive in the moment about the particular thing you're asking about. It's another one of the values of stories. They build up a relationship between you and the person who's hearing the story. Now, essentially, they have a subconscious impact as well as a conscious impact, these stories. And the subconscious impact is often, oh, this person has told me an interesting story, and so I trust this person more. And that may be something you can build up over time. Now, stories are, are of course, not a magic bullet. You can't go from a status of, I couldn't get any funding. Maybe I'll put a story around my pitch and I'll be able to get the funding. That's not likely to happen. But over time, incorporating stories will improve your likelihood of being able to get funding in the future if you start to become a person who tells stories and who gives story-like reasons for why the funding should be given. Now, because I talk so much about not using data in your stories except as evidence to support the larger, larger message, I do get a little pushback on there. And so another question I've gotten, can you please give an example where someone's gut feeling is more accurate than what the data says? And I have a couple of good examples of this. And I have talked about it on the podcast, so you might have heard this before. You know, as product managers, we naturally want to look at usage data to determine if a feature that we delivered was worth building. That's sort of a natural, a natural way of thinking. But it turns out there's a lot of features that we build that are actually never used, or they're rarely used, but they're really important for being able to sell or being able to position the product. And I have two great examples, and there's lots of other examples. There's not quite billions but there's lots of other ones. One of the examples is Instagram. Now, when Instagram first came out in 2010, they were unlike any other photo sharing app. They had a couple of important things that they did, a couple of important features. One was that they made it really easy to share the photos. It was much easier to share your photos from Instagram than from other apps. So that was one really important thing that was definitely a key part of their success. But another key part of their success and a big differentiator from all the other photo-related apps at the time was it didn't have a bunch of sliders and dials that you would use to try to enhance your picture. It had a bunch of pre-built filters and no sliders or dials at all. If you took a picture and you applied one of those pre-built filters to it, your picture would look a lot better. A lot better. Basically, the filters were designed by professional photographers, and when you applied them, the picture looked better. So that's a great feature. Now, these two things... Together, were really important in Instagram becoming, first of all, something that people felt good about taking their phone out of their pocket and shooting a picture with it because they knew they could get a decent picture out by applying a filter if their original picture wasn't that good. And of course, they could share it immediately. So two great things. So then you look at filters as a fundamental feature of Instagram and you ask, how often were filters used? Well, it turns out they were only used about 20% of the time. Now, if you can think about the building of an app like Instagram, you can imagine that building the filters feature out was probably a third of the cost of building Instagram. And it was very differentiating. But you have to ask, was the feature worth building? Well, based on usage, no, didn't have high usage. 
based on the fact that it was the thing that enabled people to feel comfortable about taking the phone out of their pocket and taking a picture, using Instagram and sharing it, super important. Now, times have changed, of course, and Instagram still has filters, but so does everyone else. So it's no longer a big differentiator. Instagram now has a bunch of other stuff as well. But when I first saw Instagram, I kind of instantly knew this was going to be a major thing. Certainly for me, I had a lot of those other photo apps. And the only thing I could ever do to a photo with those sliders and dials was make it look a lot worse. I never could make it look better. And with Instagram, I pushed a button and my picture instantly looked better. I know there's people that know how to use those sliders and dials, but they're very rare. Most of us are not that good at retouching photos digitally. And those filters were really great. Now, you can look at a lot of other products that have features that are not used very much, but which are important to the product for one reason or another. And one of the other good examples is Microsoft Word. You know, as you know, Microsoft Word has a lot of features. Most people use at most maybe 5% of the features. But for the people who need the features that Microsoft Word supports, it's very important that they support it because it means that Microsoft Word can be used by everybody to do whatever they need to do. It has a feature to support it. This means everybody can be a Microsoft Word user. And of course, we know nearly everybody is. Now, even Microsoft Word has limits, but it has features that support so many different use cases, even though they're not used very much. I guess that's a situation where if a product manager were depending on the usage data to say, should we keep this feature or not, the data would be misleading and the gut feel is probably more important. As I mentioned, I talk about Die Hard all the time as an example of a great story. It's one of my favorite movies. And this woman said, Die Hard is one of my favorite movies also. The analogy got me thinking, what role does the Hans Gruber character have in the scheme of things? And how does that compare to the stories that we tell as product managers? So Hans Gruber, in case you are not familiar with the movie, he's the person that kidnaps John McClane's wife, and he's a bad guy. He's basically the bad guy in the movie. And this is such a good question because it's one of the reasons why the approach to storytelling I'm talking about is so product management centric. You're not going to win a Nobel Prize, Nobel Prize for Literature or an Oscar for a screenplay based on using my story structure. It's too simple because I leave out a lot of stuff. But it's very appropriate for the types of stories we tell as product managers. You know, there's very few characters in product management stories. There's the hero. If it's a customer story, the hero is the customer. They have this big hard fight to solve this problem, and they solved it because of you, your product. Now, in the customer story, the role of you and your company is what's sometimes called the guide. You and your company provided a product that solved the problem, kind of like a, a magic elf giving the knight the magic sword to kill the dragon in the traditional knight goes out and kills the dragon story. But there's usually no villain per se in a product management story. Now, if you're talking about your own story, that you might tell in a job interview. You're the hero, of course, and there's probably not even a guide. It's just you and the problem. The way that I think about it is the villain is the problem. So Hans Gruber in a product management story is the problem that you're trying to solve, the situation that the prospect is facing or that you are facing in a story of your own. So Hans Gruber doesn't show up in product management stories except to the degree that the problem can be, see, be perceived as a villain Oftentimes, the role of a villain in a movie like Die Hard is to create the problem situation because of their venality or evilness. And in business software, in product-related stories, there's usually no one who's being specifically villainous that's causing the problem. The problem exists because the world is difficult and complicated. And that's one of the reasons 
that my advice is not going to help you win an Oscar for a screenplay. I don't talk about villains or plot or anything. I just say there's a problem. We need to solve it. It's going to be difficult. Oh, look, we found a solution, which is my product. And as a result, you got a raise. So what about competitors? Are they villains? Well, sometimes you can use a competitor as a villain, but usually they're a minor villain. They're kind of like one of the commandos, the mercenaries, on Hans Gruber's team that McLean had to go shoot or push off the roof or something like that. You know, they're in the way. Or maybe you think they're going to help you out. The customer thinks this, but then the customer finds out they're not really helpful. They need to get out of my way or I need to shoot them or throw them off the roof, as I said. Another question I got, your stories are about one customer at a time. What if you want to tell a story that encompasses multiple customers? So this was an interesting question because there was an expanding expansion piece that came later. So I often talk about customer success stories as individual customers having success with my enterprise software. Lots of people don't work with enterprise software, and so what do you do about that when you work on consumer software, for example, where there's lots more users? So there's a couple of different things you can do. One is, of course, that even in consumer software, there are individual users and they have individual successes with your software. So you can go talk to those folks who are using your software, your product, and learn their success stories. Learn about the pain they had, how difficult it was to find a solution to that pain, and how they're getting that solution with your product. So that still applies totally even to consumer software or consumer products. Sometimes, though, there's this concept of my product is for this generalized group of people who have a generalized set of problems. Well, even in that case, though, I'd say try to nail it down to individual problems that individual users have, even if you don't necessarily have a customer story that exactly has the wording you want, you certainly can. This is the magic of marketing. You can put those words in someone's mouth. You can say, our customers say things like, I was suffering from this bad problem. I couldn't find a solution. I tried all the things until I found your product. I was unhappy. Maybe no one literally said that, but if you know that it's true and you have customers that have said things like that, I would be very comfortable about using that kind of thing in a story. So it turns out, on further drilling with this particular person asking the question, she actually had a slightly different problem. She works at a nonprofit service and she doesn't have a specific product. So what, how can she use storytelling? So she's, what she's trying to do, she's trying to fund a nonprofit. So she's talking to funders and she wants them to fund the nonprofit so they can go out and do their intervention in whatever community and solve the world's problems. So what I suggested was thinking about this in a slightly different way. So they probably have lots of stories about the suffering of the people they're helping. The problem they have is most likely not the stories about those people, but the competition for the funder's money. So I'd think about doing something slightly different. I'd recommend thinking about the value inequality, which, is, which I talk about in podcast episode number 306, to help think about the risk of spending money. In this case, it's the funder's risk for their funding, and that's what you're trying to help alleviate with your stories. So when you think of it from that perspective, it gives you a different idea about how those stories should work. So for a nonprofit funder, the big risk that they're facing is that the nonprofit's intervention won't actually work. That is, they put this money in and it won't have any impact. So this is where you're going to use your stories. You're going to use a story like, we have these people with terrible, terrible, terrible problems. We apply our intervention. Let me tell you how that works. And then there's a meaningful transformation for those people. They no longer have the terrible, terrible, terrible problem. So I'd focus a lot on the meaningful transformation for the people receiving the intervention. 
And the reason for that is not to engage people with your story. It's to engage people with proof that your process works. They're much more likely to give you money if they think, oh, it's going to actually have an impact. That's the fundamental problem that nonprofits have is, is this money I'm going to donate going to have an impact? So your goal is to find the stories of, look, you put money in here and we have demonstrable results. And you will definitely want to use some data as part of the supporting evidence in these stories. You know, the story is going to be along the lines of Joe here is a person who, who we helped. Or Joe here is a person who you helped, put it in the terms of the, of the funder. And he had this achievement. Agatha is this person who you helped and she had this achievement. And oh, by the way, Joe and Agatha's experiences are common amongst the people we help. And most of the people we help have these great experiences and outcomes. So that's how I would go about thinking about telling stories to help get funding for your nonprofit. It's still the same structure, but your focus is slightly different. So that was a set of questions and answers to some common questions I've gotten about storytelling when I've done my presentations. Now, you may have questions yourself about storytelling and how to make use of my storytelling structure, and I would love to hear them. If you want to drop those into the show notes, into the comments in the show notes, or drop me a line at nils at nilsdavis.com, I'd love to answer your storytelling questions on the podcast in a future episode. That'd be great. I wanted to remind you about the boot camp that's coming up in just a couple days. That's April 17th and 18th, Saturday and Sunday, where we'll have a live boot camp where I will give you a little bit of training on storytelling and then work with you to build up and polish and make your stories great about your own accomplishments. You'll know how to do it at the end of that. You'll have gotten a lot of good feedback. You'll actually also learn how to give good feedback to other on other people's stories, which is a pretty valuable skill just in itself. And at the end of that boot camp, you're going to be on your way to being a storytelling ninja. Check out secretsofpm.com slash bootcamp to sign up for the bootcamp. Time is running out. Hopefully you'll join me. If you want to see the links to other episodes that I've mentioned on this episode, if you want to find out how to subscribe to the podcast on your podcast player of choice, go to secretsofpm.com slash 85 and all the show notes will be there. Hopefully this was useful. Again, let me know your questions about storytelling. Don't forget about the boot camp. Until the next episode, this is Nels Davis signing off. Bye-bye.